Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Today, yes, we're still talking about the red one. The red one never really went away. So we want to take that foundation we built last week and we want to continue it this week. Once we can identify the red one, not just what it might look like in an organization or an entity outside of ourselves, it's also reminding us because we so heavily emphasized it last week that there's a red one inside that needs to be disciplined, that there is a soul. There's something called the nefesh, appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. We all have that red one inside, and there's nothing wrong with having a soul, because if you didn't have a soul, you wouldn't be alive by definition. If the soul is separated from your body and your spirit, we call that being dead. So we don't want you to be dead. We want you to be alive to the spirit. So we want to take all those appetites, emotions, desires, intellect, and we want to subject them to the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit functions based on it is written. Not I think I feel I want, which will change every day for sure. We always change what we think, feel, and want. Adonai is not a man. He's not a human being. He is the creator. He is Elohim, and he doesn't change. He says, I change not. Uh, he doesn't need to. He is perfection. And so when we take his perfection, the perfection of his spirit, as revealed to us through his word, then we begin to discipline the red one inside of us. And the more we discipline the red one inside of us with his word, the more we can see the contrast out there in the world with those who don't live according to it is written. The, the organizations, individuals, it doesn't matter if, if they're not under the discipline of it is written, then whatever they think, feel, and want is bound to be twisted. In the end, it's bound to be twisted. And we don't want to make that error. We want our souls to be purified. We know that Yeshua came to save our soul. And so once the soul is saved, now we relinquish it to the spirit inside of us. And that's what we want to do. Today, I want to take a little bit different track. I want to talk about the red one in winter, the red one in winter, because Hanukkah is approaching. And it seems like every year the same stuff comes right back around. There's lots of people who don't think we should be celebrating Hanukkah. They think it's adding to the Torah. That's why I wrote True Tradition or Terror, The Seven Shepherds. Both of those Becky books lay out a case that these things are not adding to the Torah. Instead, they're grown from the seed of the Torah. So if you can find it established in the Word, and you can find Hanukkah in the Prophets, and if you know where to look, you can actually find it in the Torah. And so when I wrote The Seven Shepherds, I tried to take people step by step through that because often we we form conclusions when nobody gave us all the information to begin with. And so if you have more of the information to begin with, then you have a better chance at arriving at a proper conclusion. Same thing with truth, tradition, or tear. Are all traditions bad? No, because otherwise Yeshua would be in big trouble because he kept some traditions. The apostles kept traditions. We're told at the very outset in the Torah that the custom of Israelites not eating uh, the sinew, the part of the meat where the sinew is um, that runs down that back hip, that it goes back to the time that, that Jacob's thigh was knocked out of socket when he wrestled with the angel all night. 
And so even back as far as the Torah itself is telling you, yeah, there's going to be traditions that grow out of the seed of the word. You just have to make sure that they are not supplanting the word. In other words, taking away a specific commandment in order to replace it with something else or making it equal to a commandment that was never commanded. You have to say, you know, this is in some cases you could say, well, this is a rabbinic enactment, but the rabbis themselves will tell you it's not as weighty as the Torah itself, and it shouldn't be viewed that way. So I wrote those two books to help people make a slower journey through those decisions and hopefully come to better conclusions so that they can see the prophecies, uh, say in the book of Haggai about Hanukkah, so that they can see how tradition did evolve even out of the Torah itself. And so they can make good decisions about traditions. Is this a good one? Is it a bad one? Or is it just simply a tear? It might simply be a tear planted alongside the commandment, which would fit the definition of adding to the Torah. So if we can set those arguments aside, that's when we've got space and time to learn something. Arguments tend to take up space. It consumes your brain energy, and then you're just too tired to learn anything that's meaningful and life-giving. We want to study the things that are meaningful and life-giving. So in the newsletter this week, um, I just tried to continue what we learned about the red one last week. And I called it the red one in winter because of Hanukkah, because we know that Hanukkah is approaching. And in terms of explicit reference, we only have this one reference in the Gospels. And when we look at the New Testament scriptures, do we have prophecy of Hanukkah? In the Torah and the prophets, yes, we do. And so that's in the book. I take you to those places to establish those foundations. But, you know, Hanukkah hadn't occurred yet. So at that point, it's prophecy, not looking back. You know, Paul can tell the Corinthians, therefore, let us keep the Passover because they can look back in history and say, well, this is when it occurred. When you're talking about something like Hanukkah, the Torah and the prophets had already been written and concluded before those specific events occurred. Although, again, there's there's things that would happen in biblical months that are often repeated in patterns. And that's why the, the red one in winter, I think it's so important to understand the red one in winter, because in the month of Kislev, and the biblical month, which, you know, the biblical months are numbered, it would be the ninth month. In that ninth month, or Kislev, we know this can be the, the darkest month of the year in some cases. It depends on how it how it falls. But when we read about an abomination that causes desolation, and I think we've all heard of that phrase from prophecy, an abomination that causes desolation. Historically, uh, the Greek abomination that causes desolation was erected on the Temple Mount in the month of Kislev. So the month of Kislev, it's, you know, what's the moral of the story? You really need to guard your heart against idolatry in this particular month. Perhaps, you know, looking back, this particular month out of the year in its darkness, you know, the, the very idea that they would set the abomination that causes desolation up on the Temple Mount in the darkest month of the year, that says a whole lot. Because we know that the adversary likes to do his work in darkness. Even when he does it in plain sight, like he does on the Temple Mount, he still likes to operate 
and darkness, which represents his the state of being. It's it's opposed to the light. It's the opposite of the light. And so understanding the red one in winter goes back to our foundation from last week, where we learned about Esau and how his nickname was Edom, which is from Adom or red. So he came to be called the red one. And again, are there other words you might already know associated with it? Sure. Adama is earth. Red represents, again, mankind. And what does it say? His soul was formed in the lower parts of the earth. There is a red aspect to human beings, and that is our soul. And so the first human being is called Adam. Uh, He's also a red one, but the spirit of Elohim was breathed into him. He was one who was formed from the earth. And again, historically, symbolically, it's thought that Adam was gathered, the dirt, the Adama that formed Adam was actually gathered in the month of Kislev, in the ninth month, that that earth was gathered. And of all places, it's thought that the Adama was collected from the Temple Mount itself. So the struggles that occur in the month of Kislev or the ninth month, we might say they're they're more than historic. They're they're even prehistoric <laughs> in terms of the the formation of the human being. We're going all the way back to a, a prehistoric event where the the substance of human beings was gathered, perhaps in this ninth month, which is why the abomination that causes desolation. It certainly explains why Greece would want to set up an abomination on the 15th of the month of Kislev, and then on the 25th of the month of Kislev, which is the first day of Hanukkah, not coincidentally, it's it's by plan, the 25th day of that month, he begins offering sacrifices to the abomination. So setting up the abomination on the 15th of Kislev, offering sacrifices on the 25th, you can see why the celebration of Hanukkah was instituted at that particular time to basically overthrow the pride of the red one, the pride of an abomination that sought to control the very substance of mankind. In other words, like in the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, if you've done workbook one, you've read this prophecy, and it's addressed to the king of Babylon. And Babylon is the head of the red one. And then you've got the the silver Medo-Persian kingdom. Then you've got the bronze Greek kingdom, the one that we know set up an abomination during the ninth month. And then Rome, also the red one, is the fourth beast kingdom with the iron legs. And then the feet and toes extend all over the world today. Those same systems extend all over the world today. The thing to remember, they were different kingdoms, but they were part of one beast. It's one beast. And so that golden head of Babylon, Isaiah speaks to it and says, you know, you have said in your heart, I will lift my throne above the throne of the Most High. I will sit on the Mount of the Moed. And it goes on to say, you who have weakened the nations. How does he do that? Well, when an abomination, when there is something on the Temple Mount that does not belong there, according to it is written, when mankind sets up something else, some sort of thing on that Temple Mount that was not established by the Holy One, it's an abomination. 
And he is trying to lift his throne above the throne of Adonai. He is wanting to sit on the Mount of the Moed. Remember, the, the Moed is a feast time. There are appointed three appointed feasts that Israel is to go up. And in the millennium, even the nations will go up at Sukkot at those times. And part of the reason we do that is that we honor our creator. He is the one. He is Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. He is one. And so when the beast wants to set up there, and remember, the beast is nothing but human beings, human beings with a, a malevolent spirit toward their creator who say, just like the Tower of Babel, we want to lift our throne into the heavenlies. We want to establish our feasts. We're not going to follow the feast times that are written. We are going to establish our own feast times. And in the process, Isaiah says, you've weakened the nations. And I think part of that is because of the very place where the abomination is set up, which is on the Temple Mount. If the abomination can be set up on the Temple Mount, then at least symbolically, the one who set it up can uh, have the nations bring sacrifices there, imitating what Zechariah prophesied about the nations going up at the Feast of Sukkot, the appointed time. Instead, he can set his own feast day and tell the people to bring their sacrifices at the time of his appointing, the same way that Jeroboam did in the northern kingdom, he set up golden calves and had the people come at different times. He just changed it by a month. So he sets up his own place. He sets up his own time. And then he diverts the worship of the Holy One to himself, to the Red One, to the abomination. And if this is the earth from which mankind was formed, it's, it's not just symbolic, it's profoundly symbolic that the abomination would want to set up there. So we can, we can use Yeshua's template concerning celebrations like Hanukkah. And we can even learn prophecy if we understand how he applied those templates. One of the things that we can learn about is in the gospels, but it's when you read it in the gospels, it's what most people don't realize is if they don't know the history surrounding the abomination that causes desolation. If they don't know the history or the, the expectation concerning the red one, then that story can sound a little disjointed. It can sound like Yeshua just started rambling. And clearly, Yeshua didn't ramble. When he answered questions, he was being very precise. He was being very exact. So we need to understand the history of Israel. We need to understand the history of the temple which is going to help us get into the first century Jewish mindset. What were these people thinking when they located Yeshua on the Temple Mount during the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, and they ask him a specific question, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. They're just like, come on, tell us, are you or aren't you? And strangely, he just starts talking about sheep, <laughs> which sounds very random to us. It's not random at all. This would be the month and, and put yourself in their sandals. Hopefully they had something a little warmer at that time of year because it is cold in Jerusalem in the month of Kislev normally. It can be very cool and rainy. And so it's the ninth month. It's Kislev, short days. And historically, this would have been the time when the Greeks installed the abomination that causes desolation, this idol, on the 15th, and they would have begun offering the sacrifices on the 25th of Kislev. Now, once the Greeks were driven off, once the Maccabees prevailed, once Israel had a revival and they prevailed and the Greeks were driven off, we know that there was a process of purification. 
that had to take place because remember they have desecrated the holy precincts of the temple that it had to be purified from the abomination so if you're in you know first century jew you have all this history inside of you so just walking around the temple during the month of kislev would have been a significant thing to do you would have been recalling the history that took place right there and it, it would have been history that was that long ago because remember the the greeks were displaced by the romans right uh maccabees didn't do it all by themselves <laughs> when we talk about the extended period of course there was regime change but after the purification once the greeks were driven off we know the temple had to be rededicated had to be purified and that process the 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 rededication ceremonies began on the 25th of Kislev and they instituted an 8-day celebration and you say well man 8 days of celebration sounds mighty familiar to me yeah it should because we have another feast that lasts for 8 days and that is Sukkot Sukkot feast of tabernacles it's going to go for 7 days and then you add one more day at the end which is called the 8th day Simchat Torah and on Simchat Torah you rejoice in the Torah you rejoice in the victory of the word of it is written over the beast i think i feel i want and so you have 8 days of celebration and rededication of the temple mount that was meant to mimic the feast of sukkot the 8 days feast of sukkot now you say but wait a minute those little menorahs i see which by the way those are called chanukias chanukias they're not a menorah i mean they are a menorah and that they're lamps but it's a very specific menorah it's called a chanukia a means of dedication and if you'll notice those have nine spaces or nine holders on the chanukia right what does this do well there's a lot made of the miracle of the oil that lasted for 8 days did it or didn't it there's some evidence that perhaps that particular miracle is actually referring to something that had happened in the days of Alexander much earlier than the Hanukkah we're talking about there was actually a Hanukkah that occurred long before the Hanukkah that celebrated today during the time of Alexander there was a great miracle and there was a miracle of these torches where the temple priests marched all night long to meet Alexander because the well they'd be called Samaritans today the Cuthians had told Alexander that basically it was a Jewish plot and the Jews were going to you know they were responsible for subversion the same stupid lies people repeat about Jews today they were saying back then and they're like yeah you better go get them Alexander you better go destroy their temple and so the priests put on their priestly robes and they each take a torch and of course there's there's going to be nine of them that march and they march out to meet Alexander and his army and when Alexander sees them he gets off his horse and he actually bows before the high priest and his soldiers just go nuts They're like Alexander what are you doing bowing to this Jew he says no i've seen this man in a dream i saw this man in a dream and he told me that i would prevail and so basically what the samaritans were trying to do which was to incite the greeks to kill the jews and destroy their temple the the opposite's happening he recognizes the high priest and he's like what are you doing here well one of the miracles was that those torches lasted for the entire march they didn't go out 
So that was a miracle of the, the nine torches that, like I say, long predates the Hanukkah we know about. Even before that, there was a burning bush in the time of Moses that didn't go out. So there's kind of a going back into the Torah, there is an inspiration of miraculous light, just like the Western light of the menorah was said to never go out, no matter what, it would stay lit. So with that background, you say, well, that Hanukkah, it doesn't look exactly like a menorah. Why, why, what's going on there? Well, it's trying very hard not to look like one. It's trying not to look like a seven-branch menorah. In fact, many uh, more Orthodox Jews will not have a seven-branch menorah in their homes in observance of the commandment that says, don't try to replicate these things of the temple. Don't replicate the incense. Uh, don't replicate the actual articles themselves. And so you wouldn't want to have an object in your home that people might look at and misunderstand and think that was exactly the way that a menorah looked. And so having the Hanukkah is okay, because you can look at a Hanukkah and you know that's not a seven-branch menorah. So it's it's not trying to imitate a seven-branch menorah. It's trying very hard not to. Uh, so they, they will have one of those. Uh, not that probably anybody's manufacturing menorot today that look identical to what was in the temple. Uh, but it's just, you know, it's a, one of those little points there that why is it nine branches? If it was an eight-day celebration, again, trying not to look like a seven-branch menorah. And in this original miracle we're talking about where the torches didn't go out, there were nine men and they were called great lights. Even in scripture, when you read in the writings of the apostles, they will say something like, you know, great lights have fallen asleep. They're talking about great human beings. Great apostles have fallen asleep. So the lights represent people. Right? If that helps kind of redirect that. Sometimes we just make assumptions because we don't know. And then somebody can tell us what we don't know. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. And so you say, well, why would, now we understand the Hanukkah and why they would have that many lights kind of goes back to the great lights, the great leaders of the nation in times of trouble, especially when the abomination that caused desolation was set up. People had to rise up. Maccabees had to rise up. In the time of Alexander, the priesthood had to rise up to protect the temple and to protect the Jews. And so in rededicating the temple, once they cleansed it, choosing to begin it on the 25th of Kislev was not random. It was basically taking back what the beast had polluted on the 25th of Kislev. What had happened during that time, because they had lost control of the Temple Mount, is they had lost the ability to celebrate the feasts. So they missed Sukkot. They say, okay, what we'll do is we'll take the pattern that the Torah gives us for Passover. There's something called the Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni. That means a second Passover, the second Passover, because they, remember there were men, it, uh, they were unclean from a corpse. And so Moses inquires and he says, oh, sure, Moses, they can have a makeup if they miss Passover because they're unclean from a corpse or if they've been on a far journey, then they can celebrate it a month later. I'm not trying to catch them doing something wrong. I want to give them every opportunity to do it right. So that wasn't seen as adding to the Torah. It was seen as an avenue of grace to make it back to the Torah, because sometimes life happens. And so what had happened on the Temple Mount, they said, well, it was unclean. 
like with a corpse, when you put an idol up on the Temple Mount, it's like dead things are there. And they weren't able to celebrate because they were on a far journey, not because they wanted to be, but because the Greeks had driven them off. So they met the criteria. They said, okay, we miss Sukkot. We'll make a Sukkot Shani. This will be our makeup. And so they use that makeup permission from the Torah for a missed festival. And they say, okay, we can do this for Sukkot. And that's why the feast of the, the celebration, we don't say it's a Moed, but the celebration of Hanukkah looks very much like Sukkot. Same number of days, same emphasis on celebration, light, and so forth. And of course, Sukkot is celebrating not just the ingathering of agricultural products, but it's also, he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of when you came out of Egypt. It was a time of great deliverance for you when I brought you out of Egypt at Passover. And so you can see why they would look back at the Torah and say, wow, okay, we came out, we celebrated a, a great escape, a great freedom, a great miracle at Passover. And he lets us do a Passover makeup. And he's given us a great deliverance here from the abomination of the Greeks. So we'll set up the same thing as a remembrance. As we keep Sukkot in remembrance when he brought us out of Egypt, we'll take that pattern. And this will always be a celebration for us to remember that uh, even though we miss Sukkot, that he gave us a great miracle. He gave us a great victory over the Greeks. And he allowed us to remove the abomination and to destroy the, the times of sacrifice, the alternate sacrifices that were done on our Temple Mount. And again, if you're a Jew walking around on the Temple Mount in the first century, you have all this history in you, things that we're not born knowing. We're usually not born reading about, being told stories about, studying. It's not in our literature, but it's fascinating to understand where they're coming from, to get inside their heads when they ask Yeshua this question, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. And why he would start talking about sheep. Now, by the time of Yeshua, the Greeks aren't in charge anymore. They were the third beast kingdom, and they have been uh, replaced by Rome, the fourth beast kingdom. And remember what we said, Rome is thought to be descended from Esau. And so he's also called Edom, or the red one. In fact, Herod was an Edomian king or governor. An Edomian is somebody descended from Edom. So Herod was doubly red. <laughs> Not only was he a Roman citizen, he's also an Edomian. So red, red. But first century Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, we have to remember at the time of Yeshua, they were, those locations were controlled by the Romans politically and militarily. They controlled it. Now, did they allow the Jews to practice? Yes, with limitations. The Jews were happy about their presence you know, defiling Jerusalem with their idols and pigs and things. And so it was an uneasy truce, but it was controlled by the Romans. The Jews didn't like this. So the Jews of the first century were looking for the fulfillment of a particular prophecy, a particular prophecy. And in that particular prophecy, we read about seven shepherds and eight princes, seven shepherds and eight princes, and they would be raised up to defeat Edom, Micah 5, 1 through 8. It says, now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us with a rod 
They will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Now that's a key right there. The remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Remember, the northern tribes uh, were driven off by the Assyrians. The Assyrians deported most of the population of the 10 northern tribes. It says, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. You can see this is a glorious prophecy of the Messiah that he will bring his brethren back. He will do what the disciples kept asking, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom? They know they have lost brothers out there that the Assyrians took them away. And he's like, Yeshua, are you the king? Are you going to bring our brothers back? Are you going to be this one who will arise and shepherd the flock? And he says, at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. In other words, his renown will be all the way to the ends of the earth. He's going to regather the flock from the ends of the earth. It goes on, it says, this one will be our peace. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. That, again, is the key. He says the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples. At this point, it's not just the northern tribes who are missing. There are many Jews who have gone missing from the time of the Babylonians all the way up until you know the Medo-Persian Empire, into the Greek Empire, and now in the Roman Empire, many brothers are missing. And it says the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples. The expectation is that the Jews thought that when this Messiah came, he was going to deliver them from their present beast, their present red one, Rome, the same way that Judah Maccabee delivered them from Greece. And so when Yeshua starts talking about sheep, again, it's not a random answer. He's referring right here to their expectation. They're asking him this question according to this expectation. Like, if you're the Messiah, then Messiah, you need to stand up. You need to stand up as the eighth prince. And the eighth prince was thought to be King Messiah. If, if you're the one, then you need to stand up, accept your kingship, and drive away and destroy the red one, Rome. So when Yeshua starts talking about sheep, this is specific. He, he knows they're, they got in their minds right now, this, these seven shepherds and the eight princes. They have in their minds that King Messiah will shepherd the land of Assyria. 
they have in mind that King Messiah will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, that he will be able to shepherd all the way to the ends of the earth. But they, but they don't understand. It's what Yeshua understands. It's going to take a while. If he's supposed to gather all these sheep they're looking for, <laughs> and maybe they're not even looking for them, because the, the comments that he makes tell us that they're not really looking for that Messiah. They're looking for the Messiah that will deliver them and their generation. They're not really that concerned about all the sheep that have yet to be gathered in order to, for the ultimate overthrow of the red one. It's going to be bigger than Rome because this Rome, this red one, is going to extend its influence over all the earth. And therefore, when King Messiah is raised up and revealed at the end of days, not only will he regather all his brothers from those nations where they're scattered, he will also shepherd those nations with an iron rod. He will shepherd them in the disciplinary way. But in the good shepherd way, he will regather his own flock. And so Yeshua had to come first as the suffering servant. And it would appear to the Jews that he didn't do one thing to Rome. He hasn't done either thing. He has neither destroyed Rome, the red one, nor has he gathered our brothers. But you can tell from Yeshua's answer, they're not really looking for their brothers. Because here's what he says. Let me see if I can find the reference for you here. John 10, 22 through 30, I think is the whole reference. Uh, just want to read a little bit of it. Because they're saying, Yeshua, are you Messiah the shepherd? If so, tell us, tell us plainly, because you got... You got a lot of stuff to do. You need to get busy if you're the one. If you're going to restore the kingdom and get rid of the red one, you need to get cracking. And here's what Messiah says. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Uh-oh. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Right. So right here, as he's, he's not rambling on about sheep. He's saying, yes, I am Messiah. I am the one prophesied who will bring the seven shepherds. I will be the eighth prince, which is King Messiah. But he's saying, only if you're one of my sheep can I gather you. They can't hear him because they're so focused on prophecy today that they're not thinking about regathering the lost sheep. And he says, I'm going to give eternal life to them. He can't give those sheep eternal life until he dies and is resurrected. So this time he's saying, I'm going to have to die and be resurrected. And it's going to look to you like nothing has changed. And you're not going to be able to hear me because you only want to hear victory. But that is a victory. It has to be a victory for the lost sheep for me to gather them. But they will hear that I have been resurrected. And they will hear that I can give them eternal life. And that they will ne never perish if they will follow me. And I, I won't. they won't be snatched out of my hand. There is no beast. that There is no red one. 
that can snatch anyone out of Yeshua's hand if they will hear his voice. And you realize that's the same voice the Israelites at Mount Sinai hear, O Israel, we will do and we will hear. My sheep hear my voice. It says, they do what I say. He's not saying they just, not like they can hear the sound of my voice. That's not what he means. He says, they follow me. They do what I do. So not only is he giving them eternal life, he's changing their lives. He's changing their lives. And that's the challenge to us. We want to be thrilled by prophecy. But Yeshua says, if you're not willing to do what I say and to follow me and do what I did, if you're not willing to validate this eternal life I've given to you by living a transformative life, then you're going to have a hard time really believing. What do you believe? We tend to believe what we want to believe. And most of us only want to believe in victory today. We don't always understand that what looks like a failure today, it only looks like a failure today, is actually a victory for thousands of years later. And Yeshua was willing to endure the suffering and the shame of coming for people who could not believe him because they didn't love their brothers enough to bear with him as he regathered them. And to this day, that's the question. If Yeshua was the Messiah, then where are the lost sheep? Why isn't the beast destroyed? Yeshua didn't say it would be done in a day. Micah didn't say it would be done in a day. The Torah doesn't say it would be done in a day. Yeshua came to give us eternal life. But you know what else? As we go back to the prophecy of Micah, when he returns, these brothers will appear. And you know, what does it say? Um, Rachel weeping for her children. What will she say? Who are these? Where did these come from? Who has begotten me? These. And they'll say, these are the children. These are your children returning, Rachel. And so the children will be led home by the good shepherd, the one who loved them enough to endure the shame. Because see, you know, if I were the king, I wouldn't want to be ridiculed, shamed, spit upon, beaten, crucified, doubted, misunderstood. You know, we just get a little bit misunderstood and we get offended. But imagine like, they're all missing it. They're all missing why he came. He came to give eternal life because the remnant of Jacob is among many peoples and he is going to restore his brothers. And he is going to raise up seven shepherds and seven other princes. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. And what does it say? The remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. All right. Dew, from, this is like the intro to the song of Moses, which they're singing in the book of Revelation. These, this remnant, it says, is like dew from the Lord. Dew represents resurrection from the dead. And what do the words in the Song of Moses let my words fall like dew on thirsty grass, like showers on vegetation? It's a repetition there of that intro to the Song of Moses. This shepherd will be responsible for resurrecting the remnant of Jacob. And when it comes, that which has seemed like it's been very late to those who can't believe, who only want victory today. He says, when it comes, it says, it'll be like the dew, like the showers, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. So it'll seem like it came fast when 
from this perspective, it's like it's taking forever. From the first century perspective, it was taking forever. But see, when it happens, it's going to be fast when it happens. So his answer is rooted in this Jewish expectation of the seven shepherds. And it is very precise. But when we don't want to hear the answer, when we say, deliver me now, destroy Rome now, destroy our enemies now, when we don't want to hear that the reason that they're not being destroyed this instant is because more people can be saved if they aren't. That's the problem even today. I struggle with that today. Why can't you just destroy your enemies in a moment? You have the ability to destroy them, destroy them. But if he's not destroying them in this moment, in this instant, it's because there's more who can still be saved. And I, who would be so eager to say, just forget that, like these people who are questioning Yeshua in the first century, I say, oh my goodness, I'm the person. I would be just like them. Stand up, King Yeshua. Kill these Romans. Get rid of them. Send them back to where they came from. And he's saying, no, there's more who can be saved. And only he knows who the last soul is. And I don't. I didn't create his humans. He did. It's not my spirit that's in them. It's his. I didn't form their souls. He did. So sometimes we just don't want to hear the answer that there's other sheep who still need to be gathered. And for those of you who are praying for lost loved ones, aren't you glad that he doesn't destroy all his enemies in the moment, that there's still more time? And so Yeshua is saying, this gathering is going to take a long time. And this scarlet beast is not going to be overthrown until Yeshua gathers them and resurrects them like dew on thirsty grass. So we have to kind of get out of that mindset. And it, it, it takes some self-talking too. I have to talk to myself a lot especially when you see the atrocity, not just the atrocity of, of war, but the atrocity of mind games and mental confusion and darkness that has set in the world, the inability to hear, understand truth. And I just want to say, destroy all evil right now, but there are still souls to be saved. So in the New Testament, we've got this setting for Hanukkah at winter. There's Really, only one other mention of winter, other than Yeshua walking in the temple at, at Hanukkah. So the placement of things is often important. We know the winter celebration of Hanukkah was significant in the book of John. It wasn't random. And when we go back to the Gospel of Matthew, there's another mention of winter. And it has to do with exactly what we're talking about, the abomination of desolation. That abomination of desolation is associated with the 15th and the 25th of Kislev, the ninth month, winter time. And Yeshua says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. He's saying, let the reader understand. You were expected to have read something about this before. He says, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And then he goes on and he says, but pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Shabbat. Pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Shabbat. So there's two times Yeshua doesn't want you, he doesn't want his sheep stampeding. Two times, winter or Shabbat, no sheep stampedes. We find in the Jewish liturgy the rationale for this. If you have a traditional uh, sort of at least messianic Torah service, then every Shabbat, when we take the Torah, the, the covenant word of Adonai, when we take it from the ark, we hold it up for all the congregation to see. 
And the congregation will respond with these words, every Shabbat in the synagogue, every Shabbat in the synagogue. And it says, this is what we say, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let them who hate you flee from you. For from Sion will go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Blessed be he who in his holiness gave his Torah to his people, Israel. See, that's why Zion and Zionism are such hot topics right now. It's this word, it is written, this Torah going forth from Zion, going forth from Jerusalem. See, this is the ancient conflict, the ancient conflict from the Temple Mount, the Temple Mount where it's the the throne of Adonai. And he says, arise, arise, O Lord, go ahead and arise. Like Yeshua, are you the king or not? Well, at some point, Adonai will arise. And when he does, when that Torah is held up to the nations as the measurement of all behavior and all thought and all desire, everything by which the soul will be judged, when it's held up, it says, let your enemies be scattered and let them who hate you flee from you. If you hate his word, you'll run. When that Torah goes forth, its enemies will run because in his holiness, he gave his Torah to his people, Israel. That which is unclean cannot stand before that which is holy. So those who flee and those who scatter from the Holy One on Shabbat are enemies. Those who run from the Torah are enemies. So Shabbat is like the Waterloo of our spiritual battles. It's this eternal sign of betrothal between the Holy One and Israel. And there will come a day when this eighth prince stands up, which is King Messiah. And and in the book, I give you lists of who the seven shepherds and the eight princes are. But this eternal sign at the end of days, the wicked are destined to scatter on this great Shabbat to come. So why not flee in the winter? Well, the only significant date we have in winter is Hanukkah. Would Yeshua's listeners have known this? Yes. The only thing going on in, you know, the month of Kislev is going to be Hanukkah. And so in the Hanukkah liturgy, it repeats this apocalyptic expectation of how the abomination of desolation, the red beast, all this is going to be overthrown. In the liturgy of Hanukkah from the Sidur, it says, in the prayer, bear your holy arm and hasten the end for salvation. Like hasten Yeshua. Avenge the vengeance of your servant's blood from the wicked nation. For the triumph is too long delayed for us. And there is no end to days of evil. Repel the red one in the nethermost shadow and establish for us the seven shepherds. Do you hear how specific the apocalypse is in that Hanukkah liturgy? And Yeshua said that. You better pray that your flight not be in winter. You better pray that when the Torah is held up on Mount Sion in Jerusalem, you're not one who's running. You better pray that you're not one of those at Hanukkah who ends up being repelled to the nethermost shadow, who is repelled by the seven shepherds, who is shepherded with rods of iron that you're not driven out with the wicked nation. And the explanation there in the Sidur, it says the red one, Admon, refers to Esau or Edom, whose descendants brought the current exile. The seven shepherds of Micah 5.4 will conquer Israel's oppressors. 
So we can see Yeshua didn't want his sheep to be scattered on Hanukkah, because if they did, it would mean they were running from him. We don't want to run from the shepherd prince, either on Shabbat or Hanukkah in winter. So that gives a little bit of insight as to why was Yeshua walking around in the temple at Hanukkah, Feast of Dedication. What was he doing? Well, I think he was waiting for questions. I think he was waiting to explain that to us over the centuries. The answers he gave those who were questioning him are still good for us today because we see the scarlet beast all over the earth rising up. We think it's rising up. It really isn't. It's actually Israel that's rising. And what has been unmasked is that the red one is actually descending. Why is he fighting so loud, screaming so loud? Remember when Esau went into the tent and he realized that his father Isaac had already given the blessing to Jacob? It says like he's screaming loud. He's he's weeping, crying, and screaming. It's just like a dying animal. He wants the blessing. He doesn't want the birthright. He doesn't want the responsibility. He's a here and now kind of guy. He wants the blessings. Party now. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Why should I care? What happens to my descendants thousands of years later? Why should I care about eternal life? I'm going to die. I'm not going to live to see it. But we do. We do live to see it if we'll live to serve out on high. But see, when that beast realizes the end of the story, that the blessing is upon Jacob, that the blessing is upon those who control the red one and use it to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that's life. See, without that, Esau, Edom, the red one, it's a cult of death. It's the trajectory mankind has been on since he fell into cahoots with the most cunning beast of the field. But life is promised. The seed of the woman, Messiah, is going to resurrect us to eternal life. So even though it may look as though the red one's on the rise, this loud screaming, this loud protesting, all the violence you see, all the confusion, all the fear, all the anxiety is actually a sign that the red one is coming down. He's descending and he knows his time is short. And that's why he's screaming so loud. He knows his time is short because the brethren that Yeshua was talking about, those brothers that the disciples were inquiring about, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom? He did at that time. He began. Just like Adam and Eve, they didn't die instantly. But the day they ate of the fruit, they began to die. Well, you know what? The day you begin eternal life with Yeshua, you begin to live. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.